0: This morning in Sunday school, we were reminded again of the wonderful reality that we live in of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, and we celebrated that on Easter two weeks ago, but we're still here today celebrating it, and we have such hope because of the resurrection. And so as we, uh, once again in a congregation, I know that there are a number of people here this morning who have lost loved ones in the past weeks. Uh, We think of of Linda and and Bill having lost a a brother recently. I know that Frank also lost a brother just a week and a half or two weeks ago. And also that uh, Johnny and Helen, that you lost a nephew, I believe, in this past week as well. And so our, our condolences go out to all of you, and our thoughts and prayers are with you as well. And so, of course, this morning we also want to recognize Henry... We are thankful that you are here today and we are continuing to lift you up in our prayers as well in this time of loss, having lost Dalla very recently. And so there are many here who have lost loved ones. But again, the reality of the resurrection, we have hope that our loved ones are with the Lord and that we will one day be reunited with the Lord and with them through faith. And so what a hope we have this morning as a, as a church family. Would you now bow with me and let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that even as we acknowledge our grief at losing loved ones, Lord, that in you, through what you have done, Jesus, by your resurrection, we have hope that death is not the end, and that today we are here again because we have this great hope in you that our salvation has, has been sealed. It is within our hearts, and it is sealed for eternity, kept safe in you. And so today, Lord, we are here to again be reminded of that. And also the the call and the change of life that that means for each one of us. That you have not just given us eternal life for the, the life uh, that is to come, but you've given us eternal life for right now, today. That you want us to change, and you want to change how we live and what we are living for right now with the time that we are given. And so, Lord, I pray that through your word you would make clear to each one of us, crystal clear this morning, what exactly you would have each one of us to be engaged in with the time that you have given us on this earth. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give me boldness to speak your word. Let me just uh, uh, present it, Lord, in the way that you would have me present it, that the words would be yours, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. An insurance company once sponsored a seminar for its sales staff entitled, Inspiration. Has anyone ever been a part of a company that had one of those little seminar things where it was all about inspiration or trying to pump up the sales staff? I know that there's some of you here who are in sales, and so you know what these sort of things are about. The, the reality of these things is that they're trying to inspire them to increase the bottom line, isn't that right? It's all about more sales. And so this was one of those conventions And so the speaker began by telling the salespeople a dramatic success story about a man who he would, of course, later reveal to be the president of their company. And so with great gusto, he began. I know a man who drove straight to his goal. He looked neither right nor left. He pressed forward at all costs with only one destination in mind. Neither friend nor foe could delay or divert him from the road he had chosen. All who stood in his path did so at their own peril. He drove himself both day and night. Now, what would you call such a man, my friends? And from the back row, an obviously uninspired veteran salesman replied, a truck driver. (laughs) So let me ask you, what inspires you what what pumps you up what is the one thing that every time it crosses your mind it sparks something inside of you you know we all have those things at least one of them at least you did when you were young all children have things that spark something inside of them and perhaps some of us need to have that rekindled what is that thing I believe that whatever it is that sparks that sort of inspiration inside of you, I believe that that is given to each one of us by God, our Creator. And He gives those things to us to help guide us towards the unique purpose that He has for each one of our lives. So let me ask you, what is your unique, God-given purpose? One that only you can achieve because it's got your name on it. Did you know that God has a custom plan just for you? Psalm 139, verse 6 tells us this Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I like how the New Living Translation puts it a little bit differently. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book every moment was laid out before a single day had passed you see every moment of your life not just the days but every moment of your life from conception to death are carefully laid out by God in advance Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 our call to worship this morning further's this thought for we are God's workmanship Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All of these things are are pointing to the same truth. God has plans laid out in advance for our lives, for my life and for for yours. So God has a specific plan with your name on it. God has a plan for your family. And God has a plan for this church. He even has good works prepared in advance just for you. Now, this is good to know, isn't it? This is great to know. But there's one catch. The catch is this. We can mess up God's perfect plan. And how do we do that? We do it by disobeying. You see, simply because God has given each one of us free will and his perfect will for each one of our lives is according to his plan it will not simply happen automatically it does not happen just by default because god has planned it out in advance no we have to choose to walk in and live according to his plan to align our lives to his will for example first peter chapter 3 verse 9 tells us that god is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance So since this is God's will, does that mean that automatically everyone will repent? No, it won't. God is not willing. He desires that everyone should repent, but not everyone will. Why? Because people must choose to repent. There must be an exercise of our will to either obey or disobey. In Psalm 90, our scripture reading for this morning, this of course a psalm written by Moses. We will see all of these principles at work within this psalm. If you want to turn there and have it open we'll be referencing it as we go through the sermon this morning. Now, as Reuben already mentioned, we don't typically associate Moses with the Psalms. And this is as far as we know the only one attributed to him. It's not a particularly uplifting psalm either. In fact, it's a heartfelt and bluntly honest cry to God that is written in a similar tone of futility that we would associate more with the book of Ecclesiastes. But there's a very specific reason for that. So let me set the stage for you. The children of Israel are camped somewhere in the vast and desolate wilderness. They have been wandering aimlessly, eating nothing but manna for years. And once they got tired of the manna, you know, they'd complain long enough, and God would send a, uh, a flock of quails and say, they're going to eat quail until it comes out their nostrils. <laughs> God actually said that, you know. But they've been wandering around with this diet that they're, they're tired of. They're, just, they're sick and tired of the same old routine, day in, day out, eating the same thing, walking with no, no destination in mind. It's an exercise in futility. Over three decades have passed since the moment that the nation was poised on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to enter the land of milk and honey that God had promised to them. All that is until, of course, ten of the twelve spies returned with an evil report of how impossible it would be to conquer the land. And so their words of disbelief in God's promise resulted in the entire nation disobeying God. They refused to trust God and enter the promised land. And as a result, God banished them to wander in the wilderness until that entire generation of adults passed away. And so we know that they wandered for 40 years. And so they march for seemingly endless days, knowing they have no destination, their lives an exercise in futility. Not surprisingly when people have no sense of purpose or hope for the future. As most people tend to do in these situations, they complain about everything, including their diet. They bicker amongst themselves constantly. They quickly forget the great things that God has just done for them, and they are constantly one step away from mutiny against their leadership. In these circumstances, it's entirely understandable that Moses is frustrated, to say the least. To make matters worse, this led to his own personal disobedience towards God's instructions. You see, God had told him, speak to the rock and the water will come forth. But instead, Moses had struck the rock with his staff, just as he had done the time before. And as a consequence, God told Moses that he would only be allowed to see the promised land, but never set foot in it. And the weight of this sits Heavily upon his shoulders. Now, slowly but steadily, in the wilderness, this rebellious generation is passing away. Every morning, Moses receives the funeral announcements. He tuned in to CJRB and he heard, no, okay, they didn't have that, but it's the same idea. And we could just imagine in a group that size, Moses couldn't keep up with all the obituaries. And as the years pass, the desert seems to be an ever-expanding cemetery, as he leads the longest funeral procession in history. And perhaps on this particular day, Moses has just reached his breaking point. And overwhelmed, he retreats to one of his moments of solitude with God, and he pours out this lament. And he begins in verses 1 and 2, "'Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations.'" Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now in these opening statements we see that despite everything that's going on, Moses acknowledges that God is still their dwelling place and has been for all generations. He has been their protection and safety. Secondly, he affirms that God is eternal and sovereign over all of life. But then in stark contrast to the everlasting God, he continues in verses 3 to 6, lamenting the brevity of man's life. Listen to what he says. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. Here Moses laments the brevity of life and refers to the original consequences of man's disobedience to God way back in the Garden of Eden. For it was there that God had pronounced the curse. From dust you were created, and to dust you shall return. David Gerald gives his succinct take on this in a modern paraphrase. He says, life is hard, then you die. Then they throw dirt on your face. Then the worms eat you. Be grateful they happen in that order. (laughs) Modern take on it. There's a story from many years ago of a man who became quite sick. And he was lying at home in bed, and his doctor came to examine him, but he was unable to diagnose his condition. So, a short while later, he returned with another doctor for another consultation. After a thorough examination, the two doctors retired to the next room to discuss the man's condition. Quickly, the sick man called for his young son to come to him and ordered him to go eavesdrop at the door and tell him what the doctors were really saying. And so later on, the man asked his son, Well, son, what did they say? And the boy, somewhat perplexed, replied, Daddy, they were using such big words that I just couldn't understand them. All I could catch was when one doctor said, Well, I guess we'll find out when we perform the autopsy. (laughs) Not quite what he was wanting to hear, was it? Now, we might laugh at that. But for all of our modern medicine, for the great facility we have right across the street, there is one health problem that doctors have yet to solve. It's called death." As Ecclesiastes chapter seven verse two declares, "Death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart." While well, Moses was certainly taking it to heart when he compares man's life to grass, which which is fresh and green in the morning, but by evening is dry and withered. Now, I'm sure we're all looking forward to the green grass, which is coming right around the corner, but we know how quickly grass can grow, but how quickly it can fade. Basically, enjoy it while you can, because before you know it, it's gone, and so is life. As Charles Spurgeon once said, sown, grown, grown moan, blown, and gone. You know, I can identify with Moses in a small way. When I was preparing for this sermon, I looked back through all of my records, and in just over 10 years' time, I have officiated in some capacity for the funeral services of some 29 people in just over 10 years. I'm averaging almost three per year. 29. In just over 10 years. I can only imagine how Moses must have felt when tens of thousands of people had to pass away before they could enter into the promised land. Can you imagine? The longest funeral procession in history. And so he has to contemplate how fickle life really is, how fleeting. And even if we could live, and he he gives this comparison of a thousand years in your sight is but a day, even if we could live one thousand years, in the end, death would still come. And eternity still awaits. And as we glance over verses 7 to 10, we see that Moses continues to lament that man's disobedience has invoked God's righteous anger against them. In verse 11, he states, Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Now I would say a fair description of Moses' mental state at this point would be all doom and gloom. But then in verse 12 he turns a corner. It's as though a light bulb turns on in Moses' mind and he realizes that living under the constant shroud of death means something. And it means that we need to make the absolute most out of every single day That God grants us. Listen to what He says. So teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, what does that mean, to number your days aright? What does that mean, that we may gain a heart of wisdom? Now, believe it or not, there's a real website that you can visit. Don't do it now, wait till after church but there's a real website you can visit entitled uh, www.deathclock.com. Once there, you can fill in your date of birth, some general health questions, and then you hit calculate, and in a few moments, it will spit out to you the exact day of your death right down to the exact number of seconds that you have left to live. And so just for fun, I filled it out. I punched in my information, and according to them, I will die on August 29th, 2,081. That's pretty good, I thought. If, if correct, that means I have just over 2 billion seconds left to live, which would translate to 23,741 days, which doesn't sound quite as big, but still impressive considering that I'd be almost 99 years old on the day that I die. Not too bad. But of course, this is nothing more than... A parlor game. This is just something to pass the time to have fun with because we know this is nothing more than a guess. The reality is that you and I don't know and we can't know how many days we have left. All we know is that just like this sermon, the end is coming. You just don't know exactly when. So it is in accepting and embracing that our lives are finite that we gain a heart of wisdom. Which begs the question, what exactly is a heart of wisdom? Well, the term wisdom in the Greek and Western understanding refers to knowledge and intelligence. And that's the way we typically think of wisdom, the term we're familiar with. But the term wisdom in the Hebrew context, an Eastern way of thinking about it, that we are reading here, means the art of living skillfully, or living well. In other words, it's not what you know but how well you live out what you know that matters that is wisdom in the end god will not judge a man upon how much he knows god will judge a man upon how much he did with what he knew with the time he was given clearly israel didn't know it all though they sure thought they did But what they did know was that God had told them specifically to cross the Jordan River and to take the land. That generation was presented with a golden opportunity to obey God and enjoy the good life that he wanted so badly to bless them with, and they blew it. They had one golden opportunity, and God said, step forth in faith. But they didn't. Now maybe this all sounds a tad harsh, but just recall that this is the same generation that just a few months earlier had watched God part the waters of the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground. Of all of the generations of history, this one should have known that no matter how impossible it looked, nothing is impossible to God. And so when presented with God's golden opportunity to step forward in faith and obedience, to fulfill the very purpose for which they'd been created, the very reason that God had gone to all the trouble of delivering them from Egypt in the first place, they refused to do it. And instead of entering into God's carefully orchestrated plan for their lives, they shrunk back. They allowed fear and doubt and reliance upon human wisdom to keep them from receiving the blessings that can only be experienced by those who step out in faith and obey. You see, by shrinking back in disobedience, they condemned themselves. It was not God who banished them to the wilderness, though in the end it was he who spoke the words. They banished themselves to the wilderness, a place of futility, devoid of purpose, hope, or joy. Make no mistake about it. To disobey God then and now is to be the author of our own demise. God simply will not and cannot bless disobedience. Now, of course, in his sovereignty and in his mercy and infinite love, he is always working in spite of our disobedience. But make no mistake about it, God cannot bless that which his children refuse to do. Moses concluded the chapter with, establish the work of our hands. But God cannot establish a work not begun. God so badly wanted to bless his children with the promised land. He desired nothing more than to show them his power again and again by driving out their enemies before them. To bless them with peace and prosperity in their own land. But even Almighty God cannot bless a work that His children refuse to engage in. So, how does this all tie together for us this morning? Well, as we learned at the outset, you and I have a God ordained, God given plan and purpose for each one of our lives. And just in case you've missed this, step one of everyone's plan is the same. We must repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. If you haven't done that, nothing else matters. That's where it begins. But once having done that, God has a plan for you to enter into. So let me ask again, what is your unique God-given purpose? One that only you can achieve because it's got your name on it. What lies on the other side of your personal Jordan River? What is the one thing that God wants you to exercise your faith and engage in, wholeheartedly, holding nothing back? Some of you may already be there, living out God's plan for your life day by day. And if that's you, keep going. Keep believing. Keep pressing on. Don't look at the walls of Jericho. Don't look at the giants. Keep your eyes on God. The one who breaks down walls, defeats giants, and makes the impossible possible. But some of you may not be there. You're still on this side of the Jordan River. Perhaps you don't yet know what God's specific plan is for you. Or maybe you do. But like Israel, doubt and fear are holding you back. But whatever the reason, I urge you, don't stay there. Don't condemn yourself to a spiritual wilderness devoid of purpose or joy or hope. You see, my friends, we only have one life to live and a very short time to figure it out. We only have a certain amount of days that God has allotted to each one of us. And so once you've become a child of God, you and I have to take serious stock of what God wants us to be doing with the time we have left. To waste our days on selfish pursuits, or worse yet, to continue to mess with sinful behaviors is to miss the point of our salvation entirely. You see, God has specific good works laid out in advance with your name on them. And these good works all pertain to advancing God's kingdom and glorifying him. And living out this plan is the only way that you can live a truly fulfilled life. One where you will exit this world, having left it a better place than before. These good works include, but are not limited to in any way, loving your neighbor, sharing the good news of Jesus with others, making disciples, Feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, seeking justice for widows and orphans, comforting the afflicted, encouraging the discouraged, using your gifts to serve within the church, welcoming children and teaching them about Jesus, making music to our Lord. These are just for starters. To list them all would take the rest of the week, but you get the idea, I hope. The good works are endless. They are endless, my friends. But before you say, well, someone else can do all that stuff, let me just remind you. There are good works that have only your name on them and no one else's. Quite simply, if you don't do it, no one will. If there is a good work that you know that you should do, but don't do it, the Bible says that for you that is sin. Sin is not just about sins of commission where we lie or cheat or steal. Sin for the believer is also the good that we should do but don't. That is disobedience. That is the wilderness. Now, I realize that guilt is a very poor motivator, but I'll say this anyways. Have you ever felt the strong prompting to talk with someone about your faith in Jesus Christ, but you didn't? The moment just passed you by or you simply put off that persistent nudge to pick up the phone and invite them over to your house or out for coffee, I have failed in this regard before. Now consider the distinct possibility that you or I might be the only follower of Jesus that that person knows or might ever listen to. Consider that the Holy Spirit was nudging you at that exact moment because it was then and only then that this person was ready and open to hearing the Word of God. My friends, sometimes we are presented with golden opportunities and we take them or we don't, but they don't come around again. We don't have an infinite number of possible chances to tell people about Jesus, we just don't. Life is finite. We are given, sometimes, only one opportunity, and we will take it or we won't, but God is prompting us, No, you know, he is calling us, obey, step forward in faith, and do what I'm asking you to do, and then watch my power at work. And so, like that generation, we have the choice And if by our disobedience we fail to move ahead in faith and actively engage in God's specific purpose for us and his church, it is to also condemn ourselves to a spiritual wilderness. For how can God bless a work which we refuse to engage in? How can God add to our number those who are being saved if we aren't actively sharing about him with others? You see, God's will for this church his church, and your life is not to shrink back in fear, but to move forward in confidence and faith. For I believe that God desires to bring a renewal to his people in this community. I believe that his church needs to be renewed before there can be a revival. For how can there be a revival if we, his followers, are not passionately living out our faith in him? It begins with us, my friends. It begins with our hearts, And our obedience. And I believe that God desires to do that for us. And I believe that it is God's will. That not only would the faithful gather in this building every week. But those who are lonely. And hurting. And seeking healing. And hope. And purpose for their lives. God desires that my friends. But do we? Do we desire that? My fervent prayer is that we do. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39 says this But my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Let us not shrink back today, my friends. Let us move forward in faith and cross that Jordan River into full obedience into what God is calling each one of us to be doing for his glory. Let's pray together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, the cautionary tale of the children of Israel is one that is ever before us. There are so many ways that we can learn from their example. And unfortunately, much of it is to the negative. Much of it is to what they did wrong, and so we can learn from their example by not doing the same. And this is one of those examples this morning, Lord. How they condemned themselves to wandering in the wilderness and never setting foot in the promised land because of their disobedience. And I believe, Lord, that this same spiritual application is true for us and our church today. That, Lord, if we fail to step forward in obedience to the very specific things that you have called us to be engaged in, we are condemning ourselves to the same. For how can we lay a hold of, how can you bless that which we refuse to engage in? And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that even now by your Spirit you would stir up within us a desire to be obedient, to engage wholeheartedly, and to make use of the time that we have been given to find out exactly what you want to be doing with my life, with the time you have given me. And so, Lord, I pray for each one here today that if you have already shown them what you want them to be doing, I just pray that you would encourage them, fill them with boldness and strength and joy to keep going, to keep going, to double down on what you've called for them, and that they would do it with joy, and that you would bless it. But Lord, if there are those here today who don't know what that specific thing is that you want them to be engaging in, I pray, Lord, that they would not leave here today and just leave this behind, but that you would keep working in their mind and heart to show them what that is, what your specific plan is for them, the good that you would have them do in this world in your name. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who knows what that is, but has chosen to not cross that river, has chosen to... instead of obedience to disobey, I pray, O Lord, that you would bring about conviction, but also a sense of of restoration, that there is a a turning back, there is a repenting of disobedience, and that we can enter back into the will that you would have for us, before it's too late. So I pray, Lord, whatever stage we are at this morning, that you would do your work in us, and work through us, Lord, that which is pleasing in your sight, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.